What happens when an international distress call goes out to the world due to internal collapse? Well, this prospect was tested 20 years ago in our region when Solomon Islands Prime Minister Sir Alan Kamakaza requested urgent international assistance from Pacific neighbours. The island's government was on the brink of collapse in the face of five years of rampant violence, ethnic tensions and lawlessness. Five months later, that assistance arrived in the form of RAMSI, the Regional Assistance Mission. The 14-year-long mission is widely regarded as a success. Law and order was restored. It was, it's quite a story, but it's dropped off the public radar. We've forgotten about it. Well, Professor Michael Wesley seeks to remind us in his new book, Help em Friend, the colloquial name of the mission meaning help from friends, Michael is a leading scholar on Australian foreign policy and Australian relations with the region. Welcome back, Michael. Thanks very much, Geraldine. Before we start on your work, uh, you are in the place of the moment, India at the moment, which is where you're speaking to us from. Everybody's heading there, it would seem, judging by the, uh, the media in Australia. Does it feel like that? It sure does. So greetings from New Delhi. I'm here with the Australian Education Minister, Jason Clare. There are 10 Australian University Vice-Chancellors with the Minister at the moment, and we're on a a packed program of meeting with Indian universities. Uh, There will be five Australian ministers visiting India this month, including the Prime Minister, and there is a swathe of Indian ministers heading to Australia. I think there could be more ministerial visits both ways this year than probably over the past 30 years. So there's definitely something going on, Geraldine. Yes, and I mean, I read from the the Chanticleer in the uh, Financial Review that there's this terribly heavy Business Council of Australia delegation, you know, the head of the Macquarie Group, the head of the Commonwealth Bank, Andrew Forrest, Alan Joyce, Rob Scott from West Farmers and so on and so forth. There's always been sort of thought that India was the coming place and it's often just simply not lived up to all of the hype. Do you sense there's something different this time? I definitely do. I mean, I've never seen this level of both governments intent on building the relationship. I think it's got several wins at its back. Uh, Probably the most powerful one is the geopolitics of the region at the moment, which are drawing Australia and India very close. But there are also some remarkable complementarities economically, you know, socially, in the knowledge sector, I think finally the two countries are noticing each other and realising how much each has to gain from developing a strong bilateral relationship. And just before we leave this, are there any representatives, uh, big vocational education representatives there, along with all the university people? Because that's what India and, uh, and other parts of the Asian region have been calling from us, our vocational education system, and we never seem to hear the call. Not so much on this delegation, Geraldine, although there are a number of universities that are dual sector universities, so universities and vocational education institutions. But I do think that that's another area that we can really grow in the relationship around vocational and technical education. Okay, look, let's leave that. Um, Obviously, very much a work in progress and turn to your book. Why has Ramsey fascinated you so much? Well, I would argue that it's Australia's most audacious and successful foreign policy initiative. 
Australia has been involved in countless interventions over the years, but it's really only led to, uh, it led the Interfet intervention into East Timor in 1999, and of course, Ramsey from 2003 to 2017. Australia was really on the hook for Ramsey. It was the major contributor in terms of personnel, in terms of planning, and in terms of money. And if Ramsey had failed, it would have been an Australian failure to have pulled off what Australia did in Ramsey, an operation of astounding complexity, and to leave Solomon Islands a better country than we found it in 2003, I think, is should be celebrated as one of our biggest foreign policy successes. The so-called troubles in Solomons began as an ethnic conflict between the Guale of the island of Guadalcanal, where the capital Honiara sits, and the Malaitans of the neighbouring island of Malaita, who had settled on the main island. What was the spark that started this conflict and how fast did it get out of control? Essentially, it was a conflict over land rights, Geraldine. As you say, the the capital Honiara is really the big centre of economic and government activity. And it acted as as a kind of a magnet for people from all over Solomon Islands. The real conflict occurred because a lot of people from the island of Malaita, which is the most populated island in Solomon Islands, had moved to Honiara and its surrounds and had really taken up residence there on what Guales saw as their traditional lands. In 1998, there was the Asian financial crisis, which caused a crash in the Solomon Islands economy. And there were also a number of local politicians who who decided to weaponise the growing resentment over, you know, the land rights tensions. And from 1998, you started getting groups of young Guale men using violence and intimidation to evict Malaitans from what they saw as their traditional lands. Mm. And it was a very complicated situation in those last years of the millennium. Maybe you could just distill the sort of political environment and the difficulties confronting the reformist coalition government, which was led by the Malaitan Prime Minister, Bartholomew Ulufa'alu. Obviously, the Guale started to evict Malaitans and the Malaitans reacted. They formed groups such as the Malaitan Eagle Force. And you had, by the year 2000, the capital Honiara was really a Malaitan stronghold. There were armed checkpoints to come into the capital. There were gunfights and the use of heavy weapons uh, around the capital, people being killed. And then in June 2000, the Ulufalu government was toppled by a coup that was staged by the Malaitan Eagle Force. That was when Australia and New Zealand brokered a peace deal in Townsville and sent in unarmed peace monitors. That largely didn't work because the militants didn't give up their weapons. What it did was it took largely took the ethnic uh, element out of the conflict and Honiara descended into armed lawlessness, so armed gangs going around and extorting money, mainly from the government, to the stage where government officials were being held up and money was being demanded of them. And really, the economy went into free fall and 30% of the population of the island of Guadalcanal were displaced from their homes. It was it was utter chaos. And at what point, you know, the, the really terrible story, uh, the, the beheadings, there were some mm. beheadings, which I think was just incredibly dramatic for Australians to think about. When did that occur? 
that occurred in the aftermath of the 2000 coup. The key figure here was um, Harold Keke, who was a really un, an unhinged Guale warlord who um, took his followers to the weather coast, which is on the other coast of the island from Honiara. It's a wild, desolate, uh, rugged place that can't easily be reached by land. And he really terrorised that area and assumed this kind of mythical, demon-like status. The Melanesian Brothers Church sent six of their priests into the weather coast to try and broker a peace deal with Keke, who was very religious himself. And in the end, he had ended up beheading those priests as well as the local uh, elected member for, for the area. So it became very, very gruesome. Okay, so into that uh, brew, we decided we'd move. Australia decided in this radical shift in policy, you make at the point, where for, for years the orthodox position was a respect above all else for sovereignty with regard to international affairs, you know, don't get involved. So explain to us why this was such really a brave move by Australia. It was. Um, Australia, since the Fiji coups of 1987, when the Hawke government had contemplated intervening in that, that first Fiji coup, it had been told in no uncertain terms by Pacific Island leaders, you do not intervene. We are not going to contemplate any sort of neo-colonial redux here. So Australia had adopted a very hands-off approach in the Pacific, providing aid and advice, but nothing more than that. 2003 was a remarkable period. The Howard government was in office. There had been a number of successful interventions or what looked like successful interventions into East Timor. It looked like at that stage Afghanistan was going well. And of course, we were contemplating an intervention into Iraq to topple Saddam Hussein. So this was an age of interventions. It was an age where governments like Australia's were worried about failing states and uh, worried that failing states would become the harbours of terrorists and other transnational threats. And so when John Howard got that letter from Sir Alan Kemikaza that you mentioned, he thought, and he rang Alexander Downer and he said, look, I think we need to do something about this. And really it was Downer and Howard that really encouraged DFAT and the other government departments to think a bit bigger about what Australia might be able to do. And that was the thinking that ultimately led to the Ramsey intervention. Yes, I mean, there's a lot I'll hop over. The critical role played by the very early Aspie under Hugh White, uh, a reporter, yes, co-author, right. setting out how a multinational intervention would work. And I'm going to hop over to the complicated sequence of events that put Mr Sogavare returned as Prime Minister. And the reason I want to go to that is that he was clear in his opposition to Ramsey, wasn't he? He saw the mission as a front for Australian control of the country. Why did he yes. oppose the intervention? I mean, and does that have ramifications right to the present? By 2006, when Sogavare came to power, it was very apparent that Ramsey was being successful. It very quickly quelled the violence, got the weapons off the streets, arrested the militants, and restored a level of public calm and trust. And of course, this made it enormously popular among ordinary Solomon Islanders. Polls showed that between 80 and 90% of Solomon Islanders consistently saw Ramsey as a good thing and, in fact, trusted it a heck of a lot more 
than they trusted their own government and their own elected politicians. And it became very clear by 2006 that the elected politicians were feeling very threatened by this. They worried that Ramsey was more popular than them, that it had more legitimacy than them, and that it was, let's face it, getting closer and closer to discovering you know, some of the shady deals that were keeping some of the parliamentarians wealthy and in power. When Sogavari came to the prime ministership in 2006, he was really a, a lightning rod for a growing level of antagonism towards Ramsey among elected politicians. He thought this was a political winner for him. He was very much the front of that element of parliament that said, let's defang Ramsey, let's take a lot of its powers away and let's delegitimise Australia's leading role in the mission by accusing Australia of, of you know, neo-colonial designs on the country. Ramsey wrapped up after 14 years in 2017 and it's widely looked upon, I think, as a great success, but there are certain things it did not manage to achieve. What would you mm. say were its failings? I guess its failings were failings by design, you could say, Geraldine. First of all, it took a decision that it wasn't going to become involved in the politics of Solomon Islands. And the, the politics of Solomon Islands are complex and really are based on very old traditional politics of patronage. So that the idea of the big man is a very old Melanesian concept. The big man is the person who controls the resources in village-based society and distributes those resources as favours to what are called his, his wantoks or his close followers, and they in turn support him. By and large, politics in Solomon Islands still revolves around that, only the big men are now parliamentarians. And so that politics of patronage is, is something that continues to bedevil Solomon Island's politics. And of course, Ramsey mm. wasn't going to go anywhere near that. The second thing Ramsey didn't do was to address the land rights sources of the conflict. There was no mandate within Ramsey to work with traditional owners and settlers to work out a settlement in terms of who could settle where. And once Ramsey had restored law and order, what we saw was the return of Malaitan settlers to the very same settlements that they had been evicted from. So arguably, those roots of the conflict are still there and could flare up at any time. Yes, final question. Knowing what you do, having researched this, would you say there are some key ingredients, so to speak, to achieving a successful foreign intervention? Yes, I would. Um, very careful planning. Ramsey was meticulous in, before it went in, it had planned the operation down to the last day. It was so meticulously planned that within a month it had taken the guns off the streets, arrested the militants and restored law and order. And that set up the absolute conditions for success after that. Close knowledge of the, of the country, which had been built up over decades, was absolutely crucial. And I have to say, really deft handling of the politics and diplomacy of keeping a coalition of all of the Pacific Island countries on board, managing public opinion in your favour and dealing with sometimes a very resistant and difficult political class. I think all of those were handled beautifully within Ramsey and we should be taking and building on those factors of success as we deal with a much more complex region today. 
Well, thank you very much, Michael. That's a very interesting overview, uh, just a snapshot of, of really what happened uh, and the sort of complexity of it is, yeah, quite breathtaking, actually. Thanks very much for your oh, time. Thanks, Geraldine. But Professor Michael Wesley, and his new book is Help Em Friend. Uh, it's published by Melbourne University Press, Melbourne University Publishing, I think it's called. He's from the University of Melbourne too. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.